0: After his father suddenly passed away from a heart attack, Brett David took over his family business at the age of 19. Now, a decade later, as the CEO of the luxury vehicles dealership Prestige Imports, David has sold over $1 billion in luxury cars, become an active supporter of charitable organizations, and succeeded in the face of overwhelming obstacles. In a live conversation with Ivy, David shares his incredible life story and how he's built Prestige imports into the leading Lamborghini dealership in the United States, not by following all the traditional rules of business, but by breaking them.
1: Good evening, everyone. Good evening, guys. How's everyone doing, good? Good. So we've been enjoying the cars, the champagne, each other, most importantly. (laughs) Wonderful. So, uh, Brett, first of all, thank you so much for being here with us tonight and inviting us in here. Uh, Wonderful Uh, evening ahead. And guys, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. But maybe you can kind of kick things off for, uh, you, know, you know, there hasn't been a movie made about you quite yet, right? Not yet, so, not yet. So maybe you could share a little bit um, about your story, a little background, and, you know, maybe a little, even, maybe even a little bit about your love for cars.
0: Oh, there you go. All right, so I'm going to try my hardest not to continue with these run-on segments because when we start talking about the topics of where we came from, where we're going with prestige, a little bit about, you know, the background and the family, I tend to run on. So Barry, do me a favor, definitely, definitely stop me. But tonight's gonna be a lot of fun. I was very pleased from the Ivy Connect team to make sure that you can come to the Prestige Imports showroom, experience what this store is all about, understand a little bit about our background and what we come around. One thing that we're gonna start this with is having everybody understand that the success of Prestige Imports has nothing to do with one single person like myself. So let's understand that. The success of Prestige Imports is two generations deep of a love, passion, and performance for all these types of sports cars, and having some of the best teammates in the automotive game. So before we continue, for the teammates that are here with us and for those that aren't, I want to give a round of applause to the team for Prestige Imports. (laughs) The team of Prestige Imports has believed in me since the initial downfall when my father passed uh, 2007, January 20th, unfortunately on his birthday. But before we get into that, I'll go on a little bit of background on Prestige Imports. So this dealership started in 1977. This weekend, actually, the mayor of North Miami Beach, George Vallejo, just did the inauguration for us in the ribbon cutting. We actually have it on this wall here, which talks about the story story of Prestige Imports, the history and the heritage of where we came from. The dealership was developed in 1977. We started as a small mom-and-pop dealer on West Dixie Highway, which a matter of fact, that 1971 280 SL that sits in front of us over there was the reason why that dealership actually came about was when my father had a first taste of, instead of selling American domestics, had an opportunity to taste what European luxury was all about, so of course that car at the time was under $10,000 from his success of selling cars up at a dealership in Philadelphia called Ron Levitt's Sells Cream Puffs. Uh, it's, it's a long story. I'll give you a quick snippet of it. Uh, his, he was born in Philadelphia came from nothing, worked his way up, went into the Marines, got out of the Marines, started selling cars. After these guys would work them tireless hours, day after day, there was an opportunity for him to come down to South Florida. Never being in Miami, in the middle of January, Philadelphia's full of snow, comes down, sees palm trees, falls in love with the city and says, guys, I gotta move. We'll fast forward a little bit, A couple years later, has an opportunity to come down to South Florida, brings that 280 SL with him, uh, starts pumping gas at a gas station with his girlfriend at the time, and decides, you know what? Instead of pumping gas at a gas station, which by the way, he rented out. It was his gas station, branded. He said, I'm gonna start selling some, some cars. One, two, three, four, five, six cars later, seven cars later, state Florida law is You can only sell up to six vehicles. I think at that point, he was probably 20 something deep. A guy by the name of Clashius K, also known as Muhammad Ali, pulls up in a black Rolls Royce. And this Rolls Royce pulls up with a gentleman in the front seat by the name of Stephen Muss. Uh, that gentleman was the founder of the Fountain Blue Hotel. They came into the to the gas station, started pumping gas, got into conversation. The girlfriend came in the office and says, Irv, you're not going to believe this. Who's in the car? Clashes is K. Muhammad Ali is in the car. I'll spare you guys all the details. Long story short, my father had the gift of gab, convinced this man to leave this Rolls Royce on the corner of a gas station in Miami. Who would have done that today? I have no idea. <laughs> and literally allowed him to consign this Rolls Royce. Now mind you, it was sitting next to Fords and Chevys and this. and. There was just this Rolls-Royce, and uh, there was no internet, there was no Instagram, social media. So this was just people coming in, driving by, seeing a Rolls-Royce with a for sale sign in the window. Long story short, he sells the car. Calls the team and says, guys, we sold your vehicle, come pick up a check. A week goes by, two weeks goes by, three weeks comes by, and then all of a sudden, Mohammed Ali comes in with, you know, his entourage and says, you know what, Irv? I never thought you were going to do it, ever. I never thought you'd be able to sell this vehicle. I don't know why I believed you. But the guys locally knew you. They said, they, you know, you were a good guy. You had this station for a long time. But from this moment forward, you got the taste. And from that moment forward, you have to stop selling these American domestics. And you only need to sell prestige imports. And that's where the name came from. And the first dealership that started in 1977 on West Dixie Highway in a rented building, which ironically enough is still there. When you drive out of here, you can take 151st right to West Dixie, make a right. It's an angled building, you'll see pictures there. The first dealership was called Irv David's Prestige Motor Car Imports, Inc. Crazy name. Couldn't have been a longer run on statement. I don't think we'd ever be able to find an Instagram tag for that today or something like that. But it worked at the time. And I think a few years in, when somebody came and said, I want to speak to Irv, and he said, all right, I I can't have my name on the front of a building because everyone's going to go speak to me. We're just going to call it Prestige Imports. So let's fast forward. That was the forefront. We went through many different franchises and brands. We started off with Alfa Romeo, Maserati, Peugeot, all the brands that never succeeded in the country. Some of them today still don't do good, but it is what it is. And these brands were the catapult, or the catalyst, I should say, for us to be able to build on that Prestige Imports brand and that Prestige Imports name. Continue out throughout the years, we acquired brands like Audi, Lamborghini, uh, Lotus, Pagani. And Pagani we'll get into later in the, uh, in the afternoon or ne- later in the night. I'll tell you the whole story behind it because there's a massive love and passion for that brand on me specifically and my father. And um, 2007 comes about. Unfortunate passing of my father on his birthday, January 20th, of his fourth heart attack. Now my father was slim and slender just like most of us, worked out, but he had a problem. My father's problem was he didn't work to live, he lived to work. He loved what he did. He loved the passion of the vehicles he sold. He loved the the different customers we met throughout the years. He loved the city that we lived in. This was a guy that would miss certain family gatherings. Some dinners that me and my sister, and by the way, my sister's here in the third row, so give a round of applause to Brooke. Hello. So, this was a man that just loved the dealership, loved to be a part of this aspect. So, long story short, his fourth heart attack, which was completely induced because of stress, took his life. I was 19 years old. It was definitely hard, it was concerning. I never went to college, and it's crazy because everything happens for a reason in life. My father was a single father. My mother was remarried, lived with my sister in Jersey. I saw my sister two times a month, they would fly back and forth, or vice versa. And my father wasn't the type of guy to push me in to go to college. My father kept saying to me, Brett, do me a favor, give me one year. And here I am in 19, or excuse me, 18 at the time, and all my friends are going to Florida State, and UCF, and FIU, and this. And one weekend I had the taste of going to a college town. Now, mind you, I lived in my father's house. My father just wasn't my father. My father was my best friend. He was my boss, he was my employer, he was my mentor. So we had a different relationship. You know, it was two single guys living at the house at the time and coming to work every day, and we had the same schedule. The grass is always greener on the other side because all my friends would have loved to have been here and not gone to college, but I had one trip to FSU, and I came back, and I said, this shit, These cars, the dealership, it's it's overrated. I need four years to take a break. I'm going to Florida State. I'm going to UCF. I'm going to college. I need to get that experience out of the mix, and I'm done. You're a UM fan, I can tell, right? All about the U. I got it. (laughs) So I begged him, and he came to me, and he said, no, it's not happening. I need one year of your life. One year, work with me. After that, go to college. Live life. Go enjoy. So I did it. Graduated, uh, I think, high school mid-June. Had, you know, maybe a two, three week break. Started taking some little courses within the dealership. And when I mean courses, I don't mean schooling courses. I mean starting off in the parts department, starting off in detail, working sales, working finance, working upper management. And that six months, to me, was a pain in the ass. I'll be totally honest with you, Barry. I looked at it because not realizing the opportunity that we had, not understanding that at one day this would be prestige, this would be something that I'd have an opportunity to do with my sister, I looked at it as a, as a job, and it wasn't exciting to me. But those six months were so crucial. That's when we met the bank, that's when we met certain key customers, that's when I really understood the 9 to 5 of the team that we worked with, and not the 4 in the afternoon to 8 when we closed when I got there, when everyone was half dead and ready to go home to their wives, etc or boyfriends or husbands, for that matter. And it's crazy to go back and think that if I didn't have that opportunity, that I don't think that when my father passed, I actually would have had the audacity to even say I wanted to continue. So to fast forward to January 20th, on his birthday, we had, and I'll tell you a story, and I just openly, as of a couple years ago, started telling people this, because it was something that, that stayed really close. My father and I had the relationship where he managed by intimidation. And we all know in today's world, in the business sector, in the work environment sector, that doesn't work. You can't you can't do that. You can't intimidate employees. You can't intimidate teammates. You can't intimidate family. And for me, it did. And he always used to say certain things to me like, God forbid if I passed Brett or I wasn't here, you would never be able to continue the business. And granted, at that age, Barry, I'll, all I cared about was what car I was driving or what you know, multimedia thing we were trying to put out that I begged for, which we'll get into later, and he had no idea about social media marketing, online marketing, etc. And it allowed me to really gather a different side of the business. So long story short, him telling me that I would never be able to continue the, the dealership if something ever happened to him was constant motivation for me. It was constant push, it was constant drive for me to sit there and say, wow, I wanna prove him wrong. Never in a million years, Barry, would I have ever wanted to prove him wrong on this situation. The night before, our constant battle would always be because my buddies, my friends, my girlfriend at the time, they lived life as kids. They were 18, 19, 20 years old. They were enjoying themselves, they were having fun. And meanwhile, I was here in sales meetings and developing products in the back and worrying about aftermarket sales and all this craziness that I wanted to do everything else but work at the dealership.
1: Is it true too, I heard you weren't allowed to tell anyone Like customers, who you were, There was
0: one situation that I proudly walked up to somebody and puffed my chest, and I said, after they asked who I was, and I said I was an owner, I couldn't turn around fast enough before I got backhanded in the face. And he pulled me aside, and he says, what do you mean you're an owner? Did you put in the sweat equity that I did? Did you come from nothing and build this up? You're part of the LSC. You know what the LSC is, Barry? The Lucky Sperm Club. (laughs) I said, shit, dad. Part of the LSC, all right, cool. So we had this battle constantly so long story short, the night before he passed, six months prior, we filmed some episode, which was MTV Cribs. And me being 18, 19 years old, I was still starstruck. And uh, little Wayne came and did an episode here at the dealership, and we had filmed this crazy thing. And once again, my big thing was I wasn't allowed to tell anybody who I was, what I did, et cetera. So this Friday night was different than every other Friday night because it was his birthday weekend. And I finally convinced this man to take a day off, Take the weekend with me. Let's go down to the Keys. You'll bring your girlfriend. I'll bring my girlfriend at the time. We'll enjoy ourselves. We'll have a great, great time, right? So dinner was different. My father had just learned how to text message. So my dinners with him was him looking at his phone and trying to type in the word the 47 times before he handed me the phone and said, please do this for me for a second. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to this customer. Blah, blah. Okay. But this, different, this dinner was different, Barry. We spoke about love, life, religion, politics, business, what his vision of, what he wanted to see. And here I was wanting to rush home to go watch the show. I still get trembles when I think about this story. It still makes my hair spin. So we rushed back to the house, we sat on the couch, and MTV Cribs comes on, and long story short, little Wayne walks in the dealership and we see the dealership branding and we're laughing and we're joking goes oh man this is so cool and I said see this is why I wanted to tell you this is what marketing is today there's no more putting ads in DuPont registry or the Miami Herald about a used car we need to sell the story we got to talk about the brand we have to develop what you did you came from nothing this is a this is a story we were the first of its kind now now you guys are standing in a showroom that we created just six months ago But Lamborghini Miami, which was originally Prestige Imports Next Door, started off as a used car dealer with a showroom of cars that nobody has ever seen before. The photos on that wall you'll see when Biscayne Boulevard was a two-lane highway. And that's because he was a visionary at the time. So long story short, the show's coming on and all of a sudden his phone starts to ring. And his attorney, his CPA, close friends, close girlfriends of his, everyone's calling saying, oh my god, I'm watching this thing, this is crazy, oh, they see the dealership. And he's picking up the phone and he's saying to his attorney, for example, Michael, I don't understand. What the hell are you doing watching MTV on a Friday night at 9 o'clock at night? And, and it was a great question to ask. But, you know, the show was big. The show was viral. Everybody watched it. Everybody wanted to be a part of that. So, little Wayne says on TV, we're going inside the dealership. We're going to go say hello to my main man, Brett. And here I am getting all excited, 19 years old. It's a big deal. No hair on my chest. I look 12, by the way. <laughs> I'm all excited. I'm like, yes, yeah, this is going to be great. And I come up on the screen and it says, Brett David. CEO, owner, Prestige Imports, Lamborghini, Miami. So now if this was MTV and nobody called, it might be like, ah, but dad, it's MTV, what do you care? None of your friends watch this, this is kids my age. Let me have my two minutes of fame. And I swear to you, Barry, I turned around and I was sitting like this and I turned around And I just saw him in his eyes and he had this one vein like I know your mother or your father (laughs) when you know they get mad they have like that one position oh yeah and I looked over and the vein came across his forehead and here I am like bracing for my seat (laughs) trying to make sure that I don't look too stupid in front of my girlfriend that's next to me at the time and I'm like this is gonna be fun we're gonna wrestle it out for a second okay I'm waiting for it and he came up and I leaned back and he gave me a kiss on the forehead and as he gave me a kiss on the forehead he said you see kid the reason why I ask you to work so hard and be at the dealership and do these things is so you can have pride of ownership one day and possibly if the time is, if you're ready and the time is right, you'll be able to say that, that you're an owner. 19 years old, I'm like, okay, dad, thank God. <laughs> see this girl? He didn't hit me. I got him. He's my guy. Don't worry. We're good. We're good. Gave me a kiss on the forehead and said, that's all I want to see, kid. This is it. I'm out. Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to see a movie with my girl. Grabbed his girlfriend's arm. I went to go leave the house. But dad, there's there's 23 minutes left of the show. I'm done. You made my birthday. But now take this motivation, take this drive, take what I just expressed to you, and use it. And become, you know what I mean? The, the, the entrepreneur put that spirit in you. I've never been that positive with you on certain things, kid, but this one, I'm proud of you. That was the last time I saw him. That was the last conversation we had. I get worked up, so I apologize, I'm stuttering a little bit, but last time I saw him. The last memory was telling me that he was happy and he was positive about me continuing or doing this, being at the dealership, being branded the owner, which was something that I wasn't known or used to. I was used to the comments of, you're never gonna be able to amount to anything, kid. You're gonna work in the dealership. That's all you'll be able to do. That night, I stayed at the house, watched a movie, Took my my girlfriend at the time home. One o'clock, he was there, thought he was in his room, the door was locked, went to sleep. Fast forward, I'll spare you all the details. Seven o'clock in the morning, I wake up early. This is right when Facebook came up, by the way. So I was logging in because Facebook was only allowed for college kids. I wasn't a college kid, so I had to pay a buddy of mine to give me his thing so I could go spy on my girlfriend and seeing who was writing on her wall at the time just to get all freaked out. The things we used to do and go through, right? (laughs) 8.30 came around, 9 o'clock came around. He was normally the guy that would run in my room, jump on my bed and say, come on, kid, let's go. We gotta go to work, we gotta go here. But we knew we were going away this weekend, so I was all excited about going on the boat. 9 o'clock, the captain calls and says, hey, we're supposed to go, what's going on? I said, ah, it's his birthday. He's with his friend, don't worry about it, let it be. Started thinking about it, walked over to his room, picked the lock, opened up the door. Walked around the bed, his bed was in the middle of the room. Come on, old man, don't let 56 get you down kicking the end of the bed, cursing, that was a relationship we had, cursing, yelling, joking, screaming, come on, come on, come on. Walked over to the corner of the room, and as I walked up, I raised the blinds, and the blinds come past, and my eyes immediately saw the captain who was on the back of the boat, and he's looking at me, and the minute I locked eyes with him, my entire body just went cold. Like he knew something was wrong. And I turned back around, and from me moving the pillows, only thing I saw was his fingertips that were blue. I walked over to him, and as I walked over to him, his silly Samsung phone rang, excuse me, the house phone rang, and it was my sister singing happy birthday. And I just lost it. Completely, completely lost it, Barry. And that was the moment that I didn't have much time to think. I didn't know what was going to happen. I had no idea. The only thing I kept thinking about was prestige, as bad as that sounded. Brooke, you gotta come down. Brooke and my mother jumped on the first flight and came down. And I kept thinking, this isn't what he would want. We're we're sitting here, we're mourning. And this is a couple days after, once obviously we, we figured everything out. It was a heart attack. No time to mourn. This happened on a Saturday morning. Monday morning, I was with the attorneys. My sister's in the room, my mother's in the room, whole board, a million people. The conversations that were coming on across the other side of the table. Don't worry about the materialistic things, you know, the boat, the plane, the this, the that. Don't worry, you're gonna be able to keep this and we'll sell and blah, 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 and this, and, and I'm, I'm sitting and I'm thinking and I'm grabbing my sister's hand and I think, Brooke, if, if I remember clearly, you were 14, 15 years old, if I'm correct, right? I remember looking at her and I'm going, you know, this isn't what, this isn't what he wants. And I stood up and I said, Guys, I can't sell. And everybody giggled and laughed and said, No, oh, don't worry, son. Don't worry, son. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll work through this. And I said, Guys, you're not understanding. I just lost my father, who, like I said, was my best friend, my mentor, my boss. I'm not going to lose 130 or 140 employees at the time that mean the world to me, that are my teammates, that I consider family. We spend more time here than we do with, than, than at our homes. We were a seven-day-a-week business. The team loved the hustle. They loved the admiration and the drive and the spirit that my father put into them. I can't sell, and they said, hold on a second. We're going to have you read a letter. I Get the letter. The letter, letter says, Brett, if I didn't pass of a boat accident, a car accident, or a motorcycle accident, I passed because of stress of the business. I have no interest and you continuing, I want you to use this broker, use this multiple, use this ratio, and very descriptive, gave a full analysis of what he wanted to do. Of course I broke down, my sister and I both broke down, but I remember the day as it was yesterday, crumbling the piece of paper, putting it next to us and said, that's great, but just like all of you guys said in this room, the lifestyle and dad's not here so we can't make that decision for him and we need to follow protocol on this, Great. We're not going to follow protocol. We're not going to listen to him. No, but we can't do that because you're a 19 years old kid and you know who's going to listen to you and who's going to respect you and you're wet behind the ears, you never went to college. It's not going to work. I'd rather you just go live your life. Follow dad's wishes. So the materialistic bullshit
1: mm-hmm.
0: that you just explained to my sister and I that we were going to be able to have, there was not one positive element of what you discussed other than monetary gain. There was not one positive benefit than what you said other than a lifestyle that was going to be lived. And that was a complete opposite of what I was brought up with and the character that my father was and the character that he tried to instill in Osberry. So I said, that's great. I'm not Paris Hilton. I'm not, a, I'm not a, an LSC member, as he called it. But if I am, let me try. I'm not a genius. I never went to college. But that doesn't mean I can't try. But if I fail, I know that I'll fail feeling comfortable that I tried. I looked at Brooke and I said, do you allow me to continue? And she said, I'll stand by your side. I looked at my mother, I said, do you allow me to continue? She says, I think you're crazy, but I will 100% stand by your side. And then she pulled me aside and said, by the way, I told your father he was crazy when he wanted to move the dealership to Biscayne Boulevard and when he wanted to get each franchise and when he wanted to buy this supercar and that supercar and build this and build that. I told him he was crazy, and look what he did. I'll stand by you. We got the trust to allow us to continue. We got the trust to allow us to continue the dealership with parameters that I would never, God forbid, destroy my partner's inheritance. And my partner was obviously my sister at the time. Within six days later, I was named CEO of the dealership, stepped in a room, which was still here today in the Audi building with the team, stood on a little small little bench and told, the entire dealership what had happened, that we are not selling, that we wanted to continue the business. And I explained to everybody that this was gonna be a learning lesson. This was not something that was gonna happen overnight. We were not gonna be able to have a crystal ball and understand what direction we were gonna go in. Obviously, 2007, I had no idea that I was gonna walk into one of the greatest recessions that our millennial group has ever seen. So I stood on this table and I said, guys, if you leave here tonight, and you go home, and you talk to your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mistress, your psychiatrist, and you doubt the future of this business, please leave. And I'm not meaning that meanly. I'm not meaning that obnoxiously. I mean it in the sense that I'm going to need every single one of you to stand by me because I will never be able to walk in his footsteps. And I don't believe that statement either. But with all of you guys helping me, I will make mistakes. Good and bad, we will all grow, but with everybody's help, I'll be able to walk next to his footsteps. Six days later, seven days later, excuse me, we were in the dealership as a CEO of Prestige with the best team that believed in me. Not one person left that day. Everybody stood with me. Everybody believed this 19-year-old punk was gonna be able to continue. These people had families on the line. These people had children, these people had other businesses, side businesses, homes that they needed to take care of. If I was in their shoes at 35, 36, 37 years old in their position, I don't know if I would have trusted a 19-year-old punk, but they did. And I go back every day and I'm appreciative of what they did. And I'm appreciative of the aspect that my mother and my sister both believed in me and wanted to allow me to continue. And I know we have a lot of other questions to ask, so we're gonna end this point on that. But that is the forefront and the start of how Myself, my family, and this team walked into the new era of prestige imports on the 30-year mark. And 11 years later, this January, the month we're in, look how far we've grown.
1: So defining moments, right? So you're literally a teenager. And you're faced with this reality check on whether or not to continue the family business or not. Just real quickly, man. I mean, getting real. I mean, every founder, myself included, we have doubts. I mean, when you're 19, or I, mean, I can't even imagine. So can you just talk a little bit about what was going on at the time?
0: I 100% had doubts. I could never sit here and lie to you and say that I didn't have sleepless nights. I didn't have a support system around me because I'll spare you guys the details, but the elements of monetary gain throw a lot of turmoil in families. So immediately I had lost not just my father, but lost pretty much my entire immediate family. And my sister and my mother was living in Jersey at the time. So when the dust settled, and a week later, or two weeks later, when everything was out, I found myself at my house, living by myself, no family around us, and I had the support system of incredible friends. And my incredible friends at the time were really, who, by the way, are still my closest core group today. And it's ironic. I'm still friends with the kids I've been friends with since I was three, four years old. Um, They were the guide. They were the psychiatry for me when I would go home and talk to them and was very concerned about the future and said, what did I just do? I, I have to look after my sister and I'm being selfish. I had those doubts, Barry. Don't kid yourself wrong. I had those doubts to the point that I said I'd made the wrong mistake and how can I go back and I fix it? But I always knew that at the end of the day, there was a reason why he said what he said that night to me. I knew there was a reason why he had worked so hard and tried to instill this character trait of hard work in me. And I never wanted to allow it to fail. And I never wanted to have that dissolve. Yeah. So yeah, to answer your question, man, I had 100 I had sleepless nights. I had massive concerns. But I never allowed it to get in the way of knowing that if I failed, at least I tried. Exactly. And with those failures, there will always come success. Yeah, and there will always come learning lessons. So I'm gonna tell you one quick thing. Thanks. There was, there was a, a meeting that I sat into, and this was something, there's iconic points in your life that come about when you listen. People tell you things and they'll resonate in your head for years to come. I was sitting in a meeting with my with uh, with my father and a couple big people of the board. We were trying to bring on a president of the company. And he sat down and he was interviewing this, this individual. And I could tell the interview was going great. I saw my father's body language, I saw everybody in the room, the banter going back and forth, everything was perfect. And he said, you know, before we conclude, I have one question to ask you. Did you ever fail in business? And I'll never forget the guy. He had a little gold pinky ring, and he puffs up his chest, and he says, fail in business. (laughs) I don't fail in business. I've never failed in business. Are you crazy? And and I I swear to God, Barry, he stood up, and he goes, that's the answer I was looking for, man. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Guy kind of got up and said, you know, I don't mean to be rude. Was this a good thing, a bad thing? Is this a great exit? Do I leave at this queue? You know, am I good? And he goes, no, this was great. He goes, okay, so should I come back for the follow-up interview? And he says, absolutely not. <laughs> what do you mean? Everybody fails in business in once, at least once. And it's true, we all do, no matter what it is. If it's the first job, if it's the second job, if it's a task that our employer at the time gives us, whatever the situation may be, we fail at one point and it makes us stronger and builds character for the next issue, obstacle, hurdle we have to overcome. You're not for me. Because at some point you're going to fail, and it's not going to be under my token, under my watch, and I don't want to be your teacher. Have a great day. So anyway, that resonated with me, Barry, to a larger point that all the failures that we have, it pushes me forward. Every mistake that I've ever made, it pushes me forward. It makes me look at the next step. It makes me look at, great, I'll learn from that mistake. How can we go off and how can we veer to do something better and different so we make sure that doesn't happen again. Got
1: it. And growing up in the family business, I mean, you obviously observed a lot of things that your dad, no doubt, did incredibly well to establish the foundation that you've now taken to transform into what you have, right? What were some of the lessons that I mean, you learned from him and also how did that kind of shape, you know, how you put your imprint on everything that you've been so successful doing?
0: You know, I think that, and remind me to answer the question about success because I'm going to tell you about will, that, yeah. okay? The, the difference of what he did was I learned from him on how to be passionate for something that you loved and how to make something that you love your job because you know we see these Instagram memes and these Instagram mentors and they're all great I think it's good it's positive motivation it's quite silly though at some at some point but there's certain things that are said that really makes you think and if you do something you love you won't work a day in your life well that's not necessarily true it is if you're blessed enough to be a surfer and get paid your passion surfing and get paid multi million dollar sponsorship deals that's great but that's one in a trillion watching my father's passion and his love for what he did and determination to succeed and determination to be part of the small few that came from nothing, went across all hurdles and boundaries and tried to become something. At the time, I didn't understand that. Like he said, I was part of the LSC, right? I was brought up with a silver spoon. But understanding where he came from and what he was about and understanding the story made me realize that that needed to be my work ethic. But I didn't realize that, unfortunately, until he passed. I didn't realize everything that he tried to teach me, Barry. Every conversation that we had plays a massive role today in the way that I am with my team, with myself, with my family, and the way that I operate the business. But I didn't understand any of that until he passed. Mm-hmm. And every day, including today, I'm still learning. So the, the, the drive and the entrepreneurship to be there is great, right? What I didn't like was that I was the kid that would walk behind him and the customers and I would listen to the customers speak. And at that point, we were a small mom-and-pop store. We weren't doing the public company numbers that we're doing. We were doing, are doing. We weren't doing those elements. And I watched him create the sale. And it was all about the art of the sale. And after the sale was closed, while the customer walked out of the dealership and those tires hit the asphalt, he did everything he could to monetize the dollar amount right then and there. And I realized that at the time, That wasn't the way to make customers for life. That wasn't a way to build a business. Quick story. Gentleman walks in the office. I was inside my father's office doing homework at the time. Shorter Asian gentleman came in and bought a Kuntosh in 1989. This is, of course, when Miami's cocaine cowboys days was going through the roof. There was no internet. We had one white 1989 Kuntosh in the showroom, and we would sell it as one of one. And the minute that that car would sell, we had five more in the back that we'd pull right in and say, this car is one of one. And he came inside. And by the way, <laughs> let me just tell you at the time, the increase of dollar amounts. Kuntoshes were selling for about two hundred thousand dollars because of what had happened with the hype and lack of inventory. These cars were going for nine hundred, a million dollars. So you could talk about the over sticker that these vehicles were all going for. Long story short, guy walks in, walks uh, in the office, and says, "Brett, I want you to meet somebody. This is Jack Now. Jack Now came in, bought that Kuntosh. remember the one with the interior?" says, yeah. He goes, he bought that car at Pebble Beach for me. He raised his hand. He paid 980000 He puts his arm around him and says, you see, Brett, and my father, by the way, had no shame, looks and says, see the dealership we're sitting in? And we were next door. I said, yeah. He goes, the profit that was made on his sale paid for the whole dealership renovation on the inside. And he looks at my father and says, ha, you see, Mr. David, that's why I buy no more cars from you. That's why I don't, buy, I don't do more business with you. And I remember hearing that. I'm saying, wow, great. So the profit was made there, but there's no long-term, long-standing relationship. And this guy obviously has bought in 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 more cars since this happened. So making customers for life and making sure that we are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen, became my concept. Making sure that it wasn't about the art of the sale and not becoming salesmen, but becoming brand ambassadors. Building our element that he had created of an amazing staple brand of Prestige Imports on Biscayne Boulevard, which at the time was a two-lane highway, and realizing that the automotive industry was going to change. The element of the World Wide Web, your reputation, was only as big as a keyboard. There were blogs coming out talking about good and positive feedback of what had happened in the car world, and there was ideas for me on a free platform to build content to get these vehicles out there and become talked about, become exposed. So sticking to his DNA and passion of Prestige Imports and what our brand stood for of being Miami's premier supercar dealer with adding my little salt bay touch and I shouldn't say my the team's salt bay touch on making sure that we have the right seasoning and pizzazz to take Prestige Imports to the next level. It's it's crazy to see but we just try to be very different than the way a regular dealership operates but yet still try to be the same prestige imports that started in 1977 with the vehicles we sell, the location that we're in, and the passion and heritage that runs in
1: our veins. And, and, that, and those deep relationships and frankly, a lot of that magic has been working beautifully. So maybe you can share, I mean, a, a little bit of a timeline. You've had tremendous success and there's probably some key milestones that stand out that you're most proud of. So maybe you can share a little bit of that with us. You know,
0: there's definitely, let's talk about uh, the the key successes on certain things. So in 2007, when dad passed, the economy was thriving. Everything was going great. We all remember those times in the real estate market, stock market, everything was up. And in 2008, we get hit with some of the worst recession that our generation has ever seen. I had stores open, stores closed. We built Lamborghini Palm Beach while the world was falling apart, while Bernie Madoff was taking the $35 billion Ponzi scheme down, while banks were shutting down, while institutions were closing. And here I was building a standalone Lamborghini dealership. Not the smartest thing in the world to do, right? That was a a large mistake, yet a big milestone for me to learn and for me to grow by. Audi Pembroke Pines was something that we had. We built that store, sold it to the Holman organization on I-75. Built and sold some different wholesale operations across the United States. After Dad passed in 2007, our biggest claim to fame and the success and the milestone that really put prestige on the map was we were out of 285 Audi dealers in the country. We were up there around the 270 mark as far as volume dealers in the country. And in 11 months, by putting our little pizzazz, spice, and touch, we grew the Audi business from a few hundred cars a year to selling 2,006 new Audis in 2007 which made us the largest volume Audi dealer in the world and the only Audi dealer in Audi history at its time to ever deliver 2,000 new vehicles. And that was a milestone where we gathered from well in the 250th place to number one in the United States. And that milestone, once again, wasn't just me. That milestone was an incredible team that developed with me some of the most unique commission structures, not for salesmen and marketing structures, not for our advertising platform, but a network of clients out there that wanted to pr- promote Prestige Imports on their own, and we developed almost like a multi-level marketing type of a concept where we had customers bringing other customers in and getting commissions per car. And organically, our network and our market of North Miami Beach grew from a simple small idea that the team and I came up with, and we became the number one Audi store in the country. It's
1: awesome.
0: We were number one out of the the nine years. I was in play as CEO. We were number one for five out of those nine years. We built Lamborghini Palm Beach, built and sold that. to Holland Automotive Group, middle of the recession. Uh, Prestige Audi, of course, is the one I just mentioned. Our big milestone with that is, as most of you know, in 2015, we took Prestige Audi public for the largest Audi sale in North American history. We, uh, Can you share
1: how much the, uh, the liquidity event was? The,
0: it was a it was a great great number. It was well in excess of, of eighty million dollars. It was the largest standalone Audi sale in history. This was a franchise that was purchased for five thousand dollars at the time, and I think it was ninety four ninety five. Forgot the wall.
1: We when we were talking about that earlier, by the way, from one founder or another, I I said I don't know whether I should. You know, celebrate with you or hug you so you can cry on my shoulder. Oh, oh, let me. I mean, these are huge risks, right? I mean, that's the reality. Let me, let
0: let me also tell you that the the truth is that at this, the point of selling Audi, it was, it was a, a hurdle for me to overcome because we had built that store and I was all about never selling anything. The stores I sold in the middle of the recession, like Audi, Pembroke Pines and Lamborghini, Palm Beach were all for me to recapitalize and exchange my debt to equity compared to the assets we had and the cash flow we had coming in. And, you know, I used to beat myself up a lot about that. And I said, you know, I could have made that store work. I 100% could have. If I put a little bit more time and effort into that, we could have made it work. And then I go back and I think of the brands that had to be bailed out from the U.S. government, larger financial institutions that closed, private equities and hedge funds. And I know that there was larger organizations out there that had tough hurdles with me. So it couldn't have just been me. But the growth and the learning lesson from that experience, I think, built some of the, the basic foundation and character basis that I carry with me today. But on the Audi sale, it was different. So on the Audi sale, it was an exciting time. This was something that was not courted. This came to us. It was the perfect deal at the right time, at the right multiple, that would have allowed foundation to be built for my family and I, and at the most important thing, gave me the freedom to follow my passion, which always was automotive sales, but wasn't necessarily always in the volume business. It was in this. It was in curating some of the world's most incredible performance and hypercars in one location, And being able to deliver a passion, and be able to deliver a dream, and making every experience for customers different when they came in and bought their car. And it was a fantastic thing for me, but it was such a difficult moment that many of you may know. I actually canceled the deal at the 11th hour, because as everybody was sitting and saying, wow, this is incredible, you're going to sell your Audi store and walk away with X, this is great, oh my god, you should be so proud and thrilled. Barry, I swear, on my father's grave, and you could ask my sister, I would spend sleepless nights pacing and saying, what did I do? What did I do? I sold the... B- this is not what I believe in. Selling the business that he he died for, this is completely against what I've preached. And I ended up getting myself into a lawsuit about it. And I ended up saying, I'm not going forward with the deal. Hence, there was definitely a little bit of a concern based on a multiple and end numbers. The group that we did the deal with eight months later, throughout the suit, was the most incredible team to work with. They're a Texas-based group called Group One Automotive. They're the third-largest automotive group in the country. We ended up making good. We shook hands, continued the deal. When I realized that the dealership wasn't the wasn't the identifier. The Audi franchise specifically wasn't the identifier of what my father's legacy was built of or what I believed in. It was the prestige imports name, and that was something we were keeping. The property that we retained was all of the original property that we we had had configured and consolidated over the years, and I realized that this was one of those obstacles, those hurdles, those concerns I needed to overcome. To be honest with you, Barry, this was one of those fears. The fear of thinking that I was going to lose the identity of being the number one Audi dealer. And the fear of thinking, what am I going to do next? This was $155, $156 million store in revenue with a great net earnings. How are we going to replace that? So with such a positive of great liquidity and, oh my God, this is genius. Let's go pop champagne. The following day, I sat there and I felt good. The day after that, I felt okay. Monday morning when I walked back into work, the one thing I, I, I missed the most was I missed the team. I missed my group of core guys that I trained and we developed and we built processes together. We went through every hurdle and obstacle and we overcame it. We worked together as a team and we were one of the only stores in the country that had almost no turnaround in key employees because we built the team. And once again, I'll never forget when the group came in and looked at our financial statement and said, wow, your employee compensation is percentages away of where you should be. And I asked, where'd you get that from? That was an NADA standard, National Automobile Dealer Association standard. And they said, yeah, this is what we build. We know this. I build teams. I build a family. And that's what we have next door. So you can go and nitpick and choose a million different aspects of what's wrong with it, but don't ever question about what we take care of our team with and how we treat our employees. So that's what I missed. And that was a hurdle of fear that I had to overcome. And it was the best thing we ever did. And I look back at it and it grew me as a human. But I have to tell you that that was definitely a scary point in my life of thinking, "What's next?"
1: Yep, and I think that that team, that love, that extends beyond. I mean, based on our conversation, that extends way beyond even just the dealership, right? I mean, you're you're in a very privileged position to do a lot of good in the community as well. And so maybe you could share a little bit about you know one of the charitable you know charitable you know in- in engagements that you're involved in. And it'd be great also for everyone to. You know, check in. I mean, we have a pretty amazing IV community and you know, perhaps we can get behind it as well.
0: Sure. You know, looking at the different charities in the world, we live in South Florida. We're all invited to some of these great galas. We all get dressed up. We have the horrible steak on the plate that they give us that's cold because it's a 500 person dinner. You know those events? Maybe okay, great. The ones we share, the social media posts, they're all fantastic. and We love the support and it's all amazing. So I'll spare you the longer story, but a local organization came to us and said, And by the way, we've always been big in the community for certain things, but my focus has always been children. My focus has always been the kids that were plagued with certain diseases, cancers, that you sit there and you scratch your head and you think, what did this child do in a previous life to be plagued with that element of sickness at this young age that is plagued with the element of having their life taken from them before they turn 10? That was always something that stuck a place in my heart. So an organization came to us and said, we want you to be the title sponsor, Brett. Great, let's do it. It's going to be $50,000. Cool. What do we get? Told us about the branding and the marketing and the people that were going to be there, but the element was all about a scavenger hunt in the city, about driving our fancy cars and being paired up with a celebrity and going around the city and coming back. And that night, having this beautiful gala done at the Eden Rock by a very well-known chef and hosted by another very well-known celebrity. And I said, wow, that sounds great. So when is my interaction with the kids? Yeah. And they said, no, to be honest, there's no interaction with the kids. This is actually a day for you and your friends, because we want you to bring friends and pay 5000 per car. This is a day for you and your friends to go, you know, have a day, take off work, enjoy. But it's all benefiting the kids. I listened. I let him talk. I let him continue. I'm looking at the AP on his wrist. I'm looking at the keys that were for the S65 that he drove up in. I'm looking at the diamonds around the young lady's neck that tells me she works in this charity. Something didn't make sense. It didn't mix. So then I started becoming, excuse my French, an asshole. Because when I felt that I was being taken advantage of, and I felt that this whole thing was about children, and meanwhile I had no interaction with children, what is this for? This is for me? I'm going to pay this to go do it. So tell me more. How much are you paying the Eden Rock to have this event there? Uh, we can't get into that as the stuttering occurred. How much are you paying that very well-known female celebrity to come and be the host of the event? Because I know that young lady and she doesn't do it for free. Now all of a sudden there's uncomfortableness. After beating this down, I found out that 19% of the earnings of this charitable foundation went to the children. And when I say children, went to the hospitals and the centers that are all for cancer research and developing all these great medical treatments, which is fantastic, and I'm not against giving money and donations for the research, for the charitable donations for different hospitals and cancer research facility. But that money today doesn't go to a child that's sitting in a hospital fighting with chemo Knowing mentally, maybe if they're under 10, they don't understand what they're fighting, but let's talk about the 17-year-old kid that's cognizant enough to realize that when the doctor comes in and says, you have five months left, that million-dollar check, which, by the way, you can bet your ass, Barry, that was something I did. I went to Joe DiMaggio. I bought a publisher's clearinghouse check, and I wanted to prove a point. I went to a young man named Michael, and I sat in front of him, and I gave him a million-dollar check, and I said, congratulations. This kid was four months terminal. Four months. Looked at me, looked at the check, looked at his mom, looked at the doctor, looked at me, looked at the check, looked at his... And he did this three, four times. <laughs> and he looks down at me, 17 years old, and says, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. And I said, wow. Exactly my thoughts was exactly what I needed to put into play. So I sat down with my sister and I said, this is crazy. There's a lot of money being raised every year for these great foundations. But there is nothing that is for the children of today fighting the cause that we know, unfortunately enough, are never going to have the opportunity to seek that treatment that that endowment's going for. We need to do something for the children of today. All right, Brett, what do you want to do? And me and Brooke talked and we said, you know, what's one of the craziest things that we realize that people come to the dealership or to the house and they see and they love and this? And she goes, cars. I said, it's true. One of our admission statements at the dealership here is, we do not have ropes around our vehicles. We have no sign outside that says no indoor photography. These are pieces of metal. They have leather insides. We allow children, old, young, old men, old women, etc., to come, sit, touch, feel, be around the cars. Because these are pieces of metal, these are replaceable, lives aren't. But everybody looks at a Lamborghini as that mythical creature right. that we see on South Beach and get two seconds as it flies by you, and maybe you have enough time to take your cell phone out and take a picture. We want to allow these kids to become race car drivers for the day. So we created Ride to Revive which we deliver miles of smiles on the road to recovery. We gather children fighting the disease, their siblings, their friends, their family, and we curate a track event at Homestead International Speedway, where the city of Homestead has actually made in a proclamation calling it Ride to Revive Day. And we allow these children to touch, feel, sit in, drive, put the windows down and the top down, put air in their face, feel the exhilaration of the turns of the sudden acceleration of the sudden braking let them feel what v12 550 horsepower feels like driving a Lamborghini and mix and mingle outside of the hospital setting that they're so accustomed to because this just became their life a four or five months fighting chemo and knowing that that day might not come for them to ever have a chance to purchase or in a Lamborghini again so ride to revive was developed not about money although we are raising Capital from some of our customers to be involved to deliver this event to children. This is for the children This isn't a gala event with nice shiny suits and pictures for us to go have fun and realize that we think we're doing a good deed No This is directly specifically for the children and one of the biggest elements of ride to revive is making sure that the community the customers Everybody came together and worked on this cause and, and realize that the children that they were helping today were children that were actually needing this, and it wasn't monetary. It was our time, it was the vehicles, it was an experience around the track, something that they've never had an opportunity to do before. That's what it was about, Ride to Revive.
1: So when's your next event, and how can we get more involved?
0: Great question. And our next event is this Sunday at Homestead International Speedway. My sister and my mother, the team uh, from Ride to Revive, Carmel, everybody's been working diligently to make sure that this event was put on. We have over 60 drivers in the mix to make sure that, and by the way, they're all customers of ours that wanted to be a part of this. We have over 100 volunteers that are going to come. And we have close to 100 children with about 55 to 60 terminal with their siblings coming to the track to experience this day. And I encourage any of you guys, that want to be a part. Anybody from the Ivy League or any one of your friends in the community that want to be a part of Ride to Revive, I encourage all of you to get involved.
1: So what's the, the website?
0: Ride uh, to revive.org. Okay. Right. Uh, Camilla is here. She could raise her hand and the young lady in black. We can reach out to Camilla. She'll give you the information for our organization, for some of the people that work within. Of course, my mother, my sister as well. So you can connect with them via email and let them know you want to be a part of it and come out. And all I request is your smiley face. That's it come, we have cars there to be driven, we have help that's definitely needed, and interact with these children and give them a day that they can remember more than a check, more than a monetary donation, to help that child and his siblings today. Awesome. Love
1: it. Hey, so we're going to tee up for some questions from the audience, and I think it's awesome that Brett is going to give the best question tonight, you get your choice of car to drive home tonight. We have the Lamborghini Amazing, behind I us. Think. The think number one question kind. is driving
0: out in the Aventador that, that's Raspberry. Right,
1: that's right. I mean, this is this is for us. No.
0: He picked the um, Pagani, though, yeah. so he he which already is, had his first crack. Which
1: is incredible, and we're going to talk about it. So I have I have a ton more questions. We, we obviously could continue this all night. Um, but I'm going to try to focus just for a moment. Miami. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you get to meet extraordinary people. I mean, the people that come in and buy these supercars, I mean, they're... They're truly ordinary people that have done extraordinary things.
0: Don't, uh, don't get me wrong, I meet a lot of people that I admire yeah, and respect, and then, and and then, and then I meet then a lot of people that, you know. yeah. that I want to be nothing alike. And it's funny, because in a materialistic city like yeah. Miami, yeah. when people think about success, people really think success is about the watch that they have on their wrist, the house they live in, or the car that they drive. And at the end of the day, the true element of success in my world is family. When you look at a guy or a girl that has developed the foundation of an amazing family and children, and have great relationships with their parents. That that is true success for me, coming out of a monetary world like this. I I watched people in the recession, and this is a very true statement and a sad statement. Barry, I watched people lose their house, their business, their regular car, their children. It was a unique situation. But they kept their Lamborghini or their Ferrari or their Porsche because they thought that that's what defined them. And that's what would get them in to live on the weekends, to go pop bottles because that was their blow-off. That's what they wanted to go enjoy. And it's funny because in the business we're in, I love being on my side of the desk. More so than playing around with these crazy vehicles. I love being on my side of the desk because I get to meet people. And just like we're doing today of mixing and meeting with a brand new demographic of, of, you know, young folks like myself that I've never met most of you guys before. I get to learn the customer story and the trials and tribulations of their success and what they went through. And my biggest question at the end of the day is how did you get here today to purchase your vehicle? How did you get here? Some are honest, some tell me their stories and we end up spending hours over a glass of wine or champagne from the Armand Brignac bar and we we talk and they express to me how difficult it was for them to succeed to be able to be there or buy that car or how, how monumental this moment is of finally being able to purchase their exotic. And those are some of the stories that I hold closest in my heart. And like I said, I meet so many people that I admire.
1: So who, can you share like just, I mean, it doesn't, even, maybe it's a person you can name, maybe not, but just what lights you up, man? I mean, you get to meet a lot of people, perhaps ordinary and extraordinary, mm-hmm. right? I just, we met seven years ago, and I mean, you've been a, you've been, you know, a real key member of the community. I mean, you certainly know a lot of people here. You could have moved anywhere, you could have, you know, Stop deciding every single day to continue the business, and yet here you are.
0: Mm-hmm. So the question is how?
1: The question, the question really is like, who do you who do you look up to? Who inspires you most? Uh, and it might be someone from the Miami community. It might be from someone outside of the Miami community.
0: It's a great question. <coughs> I'd be lying. <coughs> water, water. Am I lying th- if I said one person? There you go. Be totally lying if I said one person. Yeah. Totally. I think I definitely look up to we're spinning. <laughs> it's like the car.
1: <laughs> it's Awesome. Hold you want to do it? Hold on, there you Let's go. Let's do it. Awesome. There we go. I, I need the moon. All right. <laughs>
0: I don't think it's one specific person. I don't think it's a celebrity. I don't think it's it's one of the customers. There's too many to name. I think I pull out small attributes from each customer, character traits from each person I meet.
1: Is there a common ingredient then? Is there a light inside of people that you see?
0: It's It really comes down to the person's character. Yeah. And in the business that we're in, I've been able to read that very deeply, very quick. Yeah. And to me, it comes down to family. It comes down to the, the way that I see this person talk and communicate with their wife, with their children, because for me, I came from a broken home. And I, I mean that in a very good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. My parents got divorced. They had a great amicable divorce. It, it definitely tore my family apart. My mother fell in love a couple of years after they passed, um, married an incredible individual, but his business was up in New Jersey. So unfortunately, she had to relocate. It separated my sister and myself. I watched my father be the young you know, playboy at the time, and I had to be the guy that watched it. And those were all great things. Look, business was good. Materialistic things were there. But we, my father was missing something, and my father was missing family. And of course, he had me and my sister. But my father chased something that, in my opinion, wasn't there. He couldn't develop that one family element and, and the way of breaking up with my mother was something that I think he always regretted. My mother as well always regretted. It was something that deep down inside I felt like they were both in love. So but the one attribute that I always look for in somebody is the family that they have and the relationship that they have with, with you know the people around them. Like I said, business elements and your determination and drive will be there, but business will come and go. Monetary gain will come and go. All of these things that are around us can easily be taken. And in the recession, I watched people on the up, and then I watched people on the down. And the conceptual idea of never following, and always leading, and always being the person that can step outside of the mold, and try to be different than everybody else, was always the people that I admired. Because it was the people that when they were told no, it was a very simple, fuck you. That's what it comes down to. When it's, uh, you can't do this, it's a no, I can. And those are the people that the minute I meet them, I feel that, I see that, I understand that, and that, that energy draws to me. So that's a, it's definitely a big push, but I, I can't say it's one specific person that I admire because there's a lot of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, there's a lot of messages in there, but the one that really lands with me the most is that relationships are true richness. I mean, that's the true wealth. Certainly a lot of people that have hit a lot of different milestones in their life look back and say it's... That's really what matters the most.
0: In a world that we live in of social media today where we all want the next best thing and you could be in a great relationship, you could have a great business, you could have an amazing family but the grass is always greener on the other side, yeah. Is it's, it's really a shame in today's world. Yeah. So once again, I want to thank Ivy for making sure all of you guys can come out. Matt Brooks, Alchemy, our incredible team, I, I can't thank you guys enough. All right, so thank you. Give a round of applause. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.